You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be tackling uncertainty. First of all, we find out where some of these uncertainties come from. Having our feet on the ground and, and, and really knowing what's, what's happening and, and where people are coming across problems and not sure what they're doing, that, that's one of the most important things. And we'll be looking specifically at oxygen, should you rethink its use. We've spent several billion years of evolution evolving mechanisms to deal with that nasty toxic gas in the environment called oxygen. But before that, I am joined by Zosia Kamitovic, who's here to tell us what's going on in the news this week. Hi, Zosia. Hi, Duncan. So something that's uh, been carrying on for a little while and we'll be seeing in the future as well, I'm sure, is the health and social care bill, the reform of the NHS. So this has now gone to its second reading in the Commons. So what's going on there? That's right. It's had its second reading and the next thing that happens is a committee of 26 MPs has been appointed to scrutinise the bill. So they'll, they'll be taking evidence from anyone who wants to give it, such as the BMA, the RCGP. They've been hearing all oral evidence from them this week mm. and they'll be following that up in the weeks to come. So how long does this, this scrutiny stage go on for? Well, that process takes six weeks, really, till the end of March. They'll be looking at the amendments that people have proposed and deciding whether to change the bill in any way. OK, and then after that? After that, it goes back to the House of Commons and MPs get to vote on it again and decide whether they want to approve the amendments or not. And then the bill will go back and forth between the House of Commons and the House of Lords until they decide on you know, an agreement on how the bill's going to look. So any idea of you know, how long this is all going to take when we'll actually see these reforms come in? Well, it can be a lengthy process. And I think the government would like to see it come in before the end of recess, which is um, July the 19th. But because the bill's so big, I think it runs to like 500 pages. Mm, yeah, biggest one ever. I that's think, right. I don't think that's going to happen. So I think more realistically, it's going to be spring next year. That's a long time. OK, so something else that's happened this week, some other reforms are at Pfizer and they're closing one of their um, plants in Sandwich in Kent, that's just right. outside London. You've covered that. What's going on here? Well, Pfizer is saying they need to cut back on the amount they spend on research. I think at the moment they're spending $8 billion and they want to scale this back to under $7 billion. And it means the plant's going to close. And I guess like all companies, they're finding it hard to find new drugs and to make money. Mm. I think two of their big products are going out of patent next year. Viagra is one of the drugs. Mm. And so they need to... And Lipitor is the other. They need to start finding a different way of earning money. Okay, so is this going to affect medical research in the UK? Well, the comments that we got said no. You know, they're all very positive from the British Bioindustry Association, the Wellcome Trust and the ABPI were all saying no, it's not going to affect biomedical research here and that things are in a very healthy state. But I think we have to wait and see. So, uh, so we're going to keep an eye on that. Yeah, that's right. There's a briefing actually next week with Dr. Chaz Buntra, who is um, chief scientist and head of the Structural Genomics Consortium at Oxford University. And his view is very different, actually. He said that things can't carry on as they have been doing in Big Pharma and that um, things are going to change and perhaps the model that they're used to is going to be different in the future. Oh, so, so we'll be reporting on that next week. 
Okay, so no big drugs like Viagra then that are going to make them a fortune are going to have to... Perhaps not. I think perhaps they may need to collaborate more. I'm not sure. I think the the way they've been doing things is going to have to change. Yeah. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see how you think that's going to go. Um, And uh, one thing that's... uh, kind of been going on since last year is uh, the Marmot Review, looking at inequalities in health. Um, it was published a year ago, wasn't it? So there was an update this week. There was, actually, here at BMA House. Professor Marmot and his team were here to launch a new set of charts, actually, which they'd put together with the London Health Observatory. And they've been compiled for all the 150 local authorities in England and they look at key indicators of health inequalities so that the idea is that health authorities have got a baseline to look at whether their policies have an impact on health inequalities in the future. So it's the first time these have been put together. So that was quite exciting. Sure. So what do they use of those baseline? What indicators? Well, they're looking at things like life expectancy and whether children at the age of five have reached the level of development that they are expected to be at and also the percentage of young people in employment or training or education and also the percentage of people who are getting benefits. Okay. Um, So they've published these charts. What's actually in them? What do they show? Well, I think the most alarming figure that um, Professor Marmot presented yesterday was that 56% of children at, at the age of five are at the level of development that teachers think they should be at that stage. So they're ready for school. They can sit down. They can concentrate. Mm. You know, they've got the behaviour skills and the language skills to be able to benefit from school. And yeah, so base to work from. Yes. So that seems, 56% seems really low. It is very low. And, and that was the average. So in some places like North London in Haringey, I think the figure was 42%. So if you think out of a, out of 10 children, six are not ready to be there and they haven't got the skills, it's quite alarming. Yeah, absolutely. So what does this work that, that Professor Marmot's done, how is that going to help? Well, he sh- he's showing that, I think research he said has shown that there is evidence that if children are read to more, that this helps all these skills. You know, it helps mm. them feel comfortable, helps their language skills, helps them concentrate. And it just shows really that perhaps in the future, if a local authority decides to launch a book scheme where children of your young age get free books, they can track whether this is actually helping children at that young age. Okay. And he said it can happen quite quickly, that reading to kids really, within a few years, you'll be able to see the benefits. So hopefully, you know, it will help local authorities track their public health programmes more. Sure, absolutely, because they're going to be in charge of that under the reforms that we spoke about before. Great. Well, Zosha, thank you very much for thank joining you, us today. And you can read all those stories and more online, in print, and now on the BMJ's new iPad app. Next, Mabel Chu, our Sydney-based associate editor, tackles uncertainty. The BMJ's uncertainties page aims to highlight areas of clinical practice that lack strong supporting evidence and to provide practical guidance in light of this uncertainty to clinicians. Now, we receive articles for this series from lots of different sources, and one of these sources is a new collaboration with the National Institute for Health Research Health Technology Assessment Program, or HTA program for short. 
Professor Andrew Farmer, Professor of General Practice at Oxford and also Deputy Chair of the HTA Commissioning Board. Welcome to the BMJ podcast, Andrew. Thank you. Now, would you like to take us through what the HTA program is all about? Yes, surely. Um, Well, the HTA, as you said, is part of the uh, National Institutes for Health Research, which is part of the NHS process for for ensuring uh, good science and promotion of research uh, within healthcare in the UK. And the HTA has the job of identifying the most important questions that the NHS needs to answer. So to go about that, it consults widely with a, wide, with a range of groups and commissions the research it thinks is most important through a variety of funding routes. Okay, well that makes it a very good partner, I think, for the BMJ series because you're in an ideal position to tell us what the uncertainties are uh, out there for clinicians. Um, Andrew, are you able to give us examples of trials that have been associated with the HTA program that have changed practice? Yes, um, there, there are a couple I can pick out that are highlighted in, in the article. Um, one is a, a trial looking at the use of uh, larval therapy, maggots, to whether they actually help people uh, with leg ulcers. Um, there's been a lot of interest in that over, over the years and uh, um, uh, the HTA picked that up as a priority because uh, it was a potentially uh, a natural therapy, one that might uh, be relatively low cost, um, and uh, tested it out in, in a large randomized trial. Um, and as always with these things, it, it didn't um, provide a simple answer, but it did provide some useful information for the NHS. So it showed it's very useful in cleaning leg ulcers up. Um, which has other advantages in terms of being able to then go on to use other therapies, but in itself it doesn't heal things up more quickly. So it gives clinicians, uh, those that are dealing with these these intransigent sort of problems, um, some clear information about what is useful and what isn't. So another example might be an international collaboration called the CRASH-2 trial, which tested out whether uh, a drug to help stop bleeding, a drug called tranexamic acid, when used uh, for people with trauma, actually uh, helped. And what it showed was in a very large group of people, those that were treated with the drug actually had better outcomes, uh, fewer deaths in in the group that were treated with uh, the tranexamic acid. And... Uh, it's something that you can't see when you look at small numbers of people because there's too much variability. Those sound like two very good examples of the useful work that the HTA is involved in. So would you like to summarise how readers might be involved or might want to get involved in this process? Sure. Well, uh, we've talked uh, about the the importance of actually coming up with examples from day-to-day practice because I think without having our feet on the ground and and, and really knowing what's what's happening and and where people are coming across problems and not sure what they're doing, that's one of the most important things. I think there are a number of other possibilities after that. Firstly, we're always keen to encourage people to get involved in the process. So there are open application procedures for membership of the panels which rank the ideas for NHS importance. Uh, those that have particular uh, skills and interest in this area, we're very keen to involve them in reviewing applications for these studies to help uh, uh, give guidance to the uh, HTA boards in, in making decisions about which groups are able to take on the research studies. 
And then in terms of just being aware of what's happening, there are monthly bulletins which the HTA send out by email uh, and they give a lot of information about new studies that are coming up. Clinicians and those involved in the health services can actually take part in these studies, can, can open their uh, centres up to uh, help with recruitment to studies. Um, and then just being aware of the research that's coming out and, and publicising that because, um, you know, our feeling about this is that it's, it is very relevant to, to what's being done in the NHS and we're keen to get it out there. That sounds like lots of opportunities there. It's certainly not a programme that's entrenched in an ivory tower from the sound of it. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I think it's been a really helpful summary of what the HTA does and how ordinary people can actually get involved. So thank you. And if you have any suggestions for areas of practice where uncertainty reigns, we'd be pleased to hear. If you go to our website, bmj.com, you can find out details of how to let us know. Now, Mabel finds out if the case for administering oxygen is airtight. I have with me Professor Andrew Clark from the University of Hull. Andrew has written an article for the BMJ's Uncertainties page on whether home oxygen benefits people with chronic heart failure. So, Andrew, patients with chronic heart failure are often prescribed home oxygen for their breathlessness, usually with nasal cannulae and usually at a concentration of around 24 to 28% of oxygen. You're here to tell us that there's very little evidence behind this practice. That's quite right. There's an extraordinarily strong belief amongst doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals that oxygen being vital for life must be absolutely vital for all patients and must be vital for everybody who's breathless. And of course, it's a commonplace that when you wander onto any medical ward in any hospital in any country, the sickest patients are all being given oxygen continuously. And it's been a long time coming, but people are starting to challenge whether or not this is the right thing to do, and particularly in the field of patients with cardiac problems. So we've seen recently there have been several rather challenging articles in, in the BMJ itself suggesting that we should perhaps not be using oxygen as routine in the management of acute myocardial infarction, for example. And by extension, it's also true to say that there's uh, almost no evidence whatsoever to suggest that home oxygen therapy for patients with chronic heart failure might be effective either. It's perhaps slightly surprising to realize that if you do actually check the blood gas measurements of patients with chronic heart failure who have well-treated heart failure, these patients have normal levels of arterial oxygen in their blood at rest and during exertion often have supranormal levels of oxygen in their blood during exertion. And in that circumstance, you can see that there really is a flagrant lack of logic in trying to treat such patients with continuous oxygen therapy. Quite right, when, uh, particularly when, as you point out, they're not actually hypoxic. Um, and we should, of course, make the distinction here between chronic heart failure that's well treated, as you put it, and acute pulmonary edema, which is quite a different kettle of fish, is it not? I would agree with you absolutely that it, a, a defining feature of acute pulmonary edema is that patients are grossly hypoxic uh, and they're breathing for their lives. And in that circumstance, absolutely, they should be treated with the oxygen that's necessary to bring their oxygen saturation up to normal. I think the 
problem is that uh, we have allowed our understanding of these very ill kinds of patients who have hypoxemia, we've allowed our understanding of oxygen supplementation in those patients to overflow into the management of other conditions that are also associated with breathlessness without actually understanding the pathophysiology of the breathlessness in these other conditions particularly well. And what worries me about oxygen therapy is that oxygen is dangerous stuff, potentially. Uh, and as well as the not having any evidence to suggest that home oxygen therapy in people with chronic heart failure is effective, we actually have no evidence that it's safe either. Now, that's an interesting point. What might some of the safety issues uh, revolve around? Well, I, the way I always think of it is that we've spent several billion years of evolution evolving mechanisms to deal with that nasty toxic gas in the environment called oxygen. Yes, of course, it is essential for life, but the downside of oxygen is that it's a highly reactive molecule. Uh, and the generation of um, free radicals within biological systems being a major factor involved with cellular damage and perhaps aging in humans, it always seems to me that before we start prescribing things, we should at least be certain that they're safe. Mm. And what about other putative benefits we ascribe to oxygen in, in these circumstances? Does it benefit the sensation of breathlessness that patients with chronic heart failure have? Well, again, that's a, 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 an extremely important question to which we do not know the answer. There are some ex extremely good studies in the palliative care field that have looked at the effect of supplemental oxygen on the sensation of breathlessness in a variety of pathologies, predominantly uh, lung disease and lung cancer. And the truth would appear to be that oxygen itself has no benefit above air. So there's some evidence that, to suggest that the sensation of air blowing across the face actually makes you feel less breathless. And there is little evidence that um, oxygen per se helps with breathlessness in patients who are normoxemic. The one area that we haven't touched upon as it relates to chronic heart failure is that many patients, and it's disputed quite what proportion, but many patients with chronic heart failure have hypoxia overnight as part of sleep disordered breathing. And it's certainly true that some of those patients might benefit from supplemental oxygen. But again, that hasn't been studied other than in very small short-term studies. Okay. And is there any evidence that it benefits other functions such as exercise capacity? Again, it's slightly surprising that there's really remarkably little evidence about this. There are some studies that are just small-scale physiological studies that have looked at the effects of oxygen supplementation on um, exercise capacity acutely, so distance walks in a six-minute walk test, that kind of thing. And some of these studies have suggested that there is a small improvement in exercise capacity, but that's not uniformly the case. Other studies have actually suggested that there's no beneficial effect of the acute administration of large quantities of oxygen. So even that little question remains unanswered. You probably don't have good news as far as its effect on hard cardiovascular outcomes, such as hospital admission rates or mortality rates, I'd imagine. Sadly, you're absolutely right. Can't, just simply don't know the answer to that.
It's it. The, the, I think the reason it's widely prescribed is a, a, an extension from the well-known effects of chronic home oxygen therapy for people with chronic lung disease. But it's vital to remember that the patients in whom that home oxygen therapy is effective are people who are hypoxemic at rest. So they are, although they are maybe as breathless as people with heart failure, their underlying pathophysiology is very different. They are hypoxic, whereas the patients with well-treated chronic heart failure do not seem to be. Mm -hmm. It's it's very difficult for GPs when they're faced with a, a breathless patient. Their carer may come up to you and say, won't some oxygen help? What should I as a GP be saying to my patients? I think, I think that's one of the hardest kinds of things that doctors have to deal with. The importance there is to be as open as possible with the, with the patient and their carers about the limitations of our knowledge and what we know. I think it is a reasonable thing when patients are clearly dying or in the final stages of their illness. I think it is a reasonable thing that we attempt to find anything that is helpful in terms of providing relief of symptoms. And it would seem to me that in the last stages of dying from heart failure, it's reasonable to attempt to see if some form of home oxygen therapy, whether it's nasal cannulae and a home oxygen concentrator, actually does provide symptomatic relief or not. But I must say, I would, I would try and resist it as far as possible, whilst acknowledging that a lot of pressure can be brought to bear on doctors looking after patients. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with a look at type 1 diabetes. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.